The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Napoleon, I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is a rec- a r- a r- <laughs> yes, Fred, you're a stealth fighter here. Come on, Fred. You can't see that, Fred? Thank you. Did you all hear that? Well, he'll say it again after uh, Genesis is over. Irrevocably, the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. H.G. Wells. No one else holds or has held the place in the heart of the world which Jesus holds. Other gods have been as devoutly worshipped. No other man has been so devoutly loved. John Knox. As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. Albert Einstein. Jesus Christ is to me the outstanding personality of all time, all history, both as the Son of God and as the Son of Man. Everything he ever said or did has value for us today, and that is something you can say of no other man, dead or alive. There is no easy middle ground to stroll upon. You either accept Jesus or you reject him. Another very famous Jewish author, scholar, theologian. After the fall of so many gods in this century, this person, broken at the hands of his opponents and constantly betrayed through the ages of his adherents, is obviously still, for innumerable people, the most moving figure in the long history of mankind. Hans Kung, German theologian. One more by Napoleon. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me, and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ, or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history, nor humanity, nor the ages, nor nature offer me anything which I am able to compare it or to explain it. He is everything extraordinary. That was by Napoleon once again. I'm excited uh, tonight because we are kicking off a brand new series uh, called Jesus. And uh, over the next um, 
few uh, weeks, okay, just kidding, months, uh, we are going to be slowly uh, walking through uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the Gospel of Mark will be our guide, um, but this was actually difficult to uh, pare down a list of uh, what people have said about Jesus over the last 20, 21 centuries. I mean, people have had so much to say uh, about the person of Jesus Christ. His impact over the last 2,000 years uh, has been phenomenal. Um, tonight, as we begin this Jesus series, walking through the Gospel of Mark, I wonder what impact he's had on you. What would you be, if I were to quote you, what would you say about the person of Jesus? What would be your quote? I want you just to think about that for a minute. Some here tonight have known the person of Jesus uh, and been in relationship with Jesus for the better part of your life. What would you have to say about the person of Jesus? This Jewish carpenter, at the turn of uh, the century, what would you say about him? Maybe some of have just come into contact, into relation just recently, or literally the last few weeks, last few months. What do you know about Jesus? What would be your quote? And some uh, here tonight I know are just trying to figure this out. Who is this Jesus person? We all would have something to say. What's amazing to me is that we actually have something to say about a man who lived 2,000 some odd years ago. Why are we still talking about the person Jesus? Why do we sing songs about the person of Jesus? Artists throughout the centuries have painted pictures of this person Jesus. If you look at art throughout the centuries, the most dominant figure uh, in art, uh, not just religious spiritual art, is the person of Jesus. And more recently, modern day artists have come up with bobbleheads for Jesus and t-shirts uh, for Jesus. Why are we so consumed with the person of Jesus? What would you say about him? My heart, as uh, we're starting uh, this gospel of uh, journeying through the gospel of uh, Mark, is uh, a couple things I, I hope and pray that uh, as we spend a few months uh, in this book uh, would be twofold. That Jesus would breathe life into your life. I have no idea how you would describe your life as you sit here tonight. Busy, burdened, anxious, worried, maxed out. I have no idea what words you'd actually use. But the thing that I know about Jesus is he is one who brings life and breathes life. And my hope as we start this journey tonight is wherever you are, that Jesus would literally breathe life into your life. So that so much so when someone asks you, how are you? I'm alive. We would stop using words, just all the adjectives I just threw at you. Well, why? Why are you alive? Not just physically. I hope that Jesus will breathe life because that's what he does. People come into contact with the person of Jesus and he breathes life. Second thing, I, I hope and pray that you will be gripped. You will be so enamored with this Jewish carpenter. You will be gripped by the person uh, of Jesus, who he was, who he is, what he did, and what he's still doing. Guys, this one's for you. I hope, fellas, 
that you will come to a point over the next few weeks, over the next few months, where you'll actually come to be able to confess and mean it and boldly proclaim it. I absolutely love this person, Jesus. I would love for all of the men in this community to actually, that would be something you would be cool with saying. Not ashamed of saying, yeah, I love this person, Jesus Christ. And ladies, I, my prayer is that that would be yours as well. Fellas have a little more emotional disconnect telling another guy that they love him. I hope and pray as we begin this Jesus series that uh, as we dive into his life, our life would actually start looking a little bit more like his. That we would become the hands and the feet, the mind and the heart and the voice of Jesus to the world in which we live. I hope this is not just a study in who Jesus was and what he did and what he said. I hope because of your interaction with Jesus that we will begin to take on his person. We will begin to imitate. We will begin to look like Jesus to those that are around us. And I pray that uh, in word and in deed that we would live lives that would call e-religious people, people who are not religious, they come from no faith background, I pray that we would be bold in inviting them to come to the person of Jesus. And people who are very religious, I pray that because of our interaction, our understanding of who Jesus is, we would call religious people to repent of just being religious. This is not about being a more religious, spiritual person. This is about being in relationship with Jesus. This is um, a quote by uh, Tim Keller, just put out a new book uh, a couple days ago. He is a pastor in uh, New York and um, put out a book called The Prodigal God. And I was reading it uh, this past week and came across this quote. It says, Jesus teaching, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders that Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. I want you to catch this. If the preaching of our ministers, guys like me, and the practice of our parishioners, people like you, the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. That was his conclusion. I wanted to make a commitment to you as I read that uh, this uh, past weekend, just yesterday actually, I wanted to make a commitment to you that uh, I'm going to preach the full message of Jesus as best as I possibly know how to and as best as, best as I possibly can. I'm not going to hold back on you. I will probably offend some of you along the way. I'll be okay with that. You might leave and not come back, but at least you'll have heard what Jesus said, what he did, how he lived. My intent is not to just try to offend you, but I will not hold back. And I would ask as we begin this series, wherever you are on the spectrum of knowing Jesus, 
that you would not hold back either. That you would dive into not just the gospel of Mark, but you would dive into wanting to know the most prolific person in all of human history. That you would be so engaged and so invested in wanting to know the person of Jesus. Father God, I pray as we would begin this journey. God, let us begin with eyes wide open and hearts wide open. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would do only what you can do. Reveal yourself. Reveal your life. The things that you said, the things that you did, the people you interacted with. Father, I pray it would be so real, it would come so alive. And we would begin to see, as we relate with you, Jesus, a difference. So, Father, God, Lord Jesus Christ, we commit this journey to you. We commit this journey to you, and we pray when we would come to the end of this journey, we would all look so much more like Jesus, and people who do not know Jesus would know him. People who come from not any faith background would come to the person of Jesus, and people who have a faith background that's just religious they would come to Jesus too. So guide us on our journey, God. Lord Jesus, guide us as we dive into you, your heart. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Some background is we're gonna start uh, this book. Uh, it's 16 chapters long. It is the shortest gospel. And one of the things that uh, we're gonna find out even tonight is Mark is really quick. He just uh, says some things and moves on to the, the next aspect of the story. And um, author, most people would say uh, John Mark, John being his first name, Mark middle name, uh, was a close friend, uh, translator, associate of uh, the apostle Peter. Uh, Peter was an uh, original disciple, walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, ultimately died for Jesus. Uh, this book was written in the midst of an incredible uh, amount of persecution. Uh, most people kind of think the Gospels were actually the first books in the New Testament that were written. Uh, this was, most people would agree, the first Gospel written almost 40 years after Jesus died. So somewhere between 65 and 70 A.D. is when they date uh, this Gospel uh, account. And if you're a historian and you know anything about first century uh, history, if you were a Christian, if you were a person who said, um, I'm following Jesus, uh, that was pretty much a statement that would seal your death, especially in the 60s. Not like the 60s that we had. <laughs> Just make that clear. People were getting killed because they were associating with the person of Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul, uh, Peter, uh, all of these guys died in the mid-60s. Uh, Jerusalem, sacked, crushed, overthrown, 70 A.D., so this is a book that's being written uh, to a community of people that is being uh, literally killed off community by community by community. And so I sense that John Mark is writing this book, this account, this story. He wants to remind people of one, one truth, one reality, that Jesus is worth it. There is no greater person to give your life to or to lay your life down for. 
There is no greater person. And so as people, I imagine as they're reading this for the first time, how encouraged they would be to say, I will keep going on. Even if my life will be taken from me, it will be taken from me in the name of Jesus, not because of some other reason. Pay attention as we are going to go through a couple different themes I wanted to pass along. Uh, First theme would be this. This is a book that is about the power of God let loose in the world through the person of Jesus Christ. So there will be a lot of talk about the, the kingdom of God is arriving in the person of Jesus Christ. Another theme which I readily identify with is a theme that uh, people call discipleship failure. Jesus, you'll find this throughout all 16 chapters, Jesus is coming to his disciples and asking him, why are you so scared? Where is your faith? You have such little faith. Why do you doubt? I mean, it seems like Jesus is hammering home with these guys. What is your deal? Why don't you get it? So throughout this uh, Mark's account of this gospel, he highlights when the disciples mess up, more so than any other gospel. And I take great hope in that because I can relate. Anyone else? I can relate. And the truth is that Jesus does not give up on them in the midst of their failure. He takes their greatest failure and turns it into greater faith. I want you to catch that. Anytime these guys are messing up, putting their foot in their mouth, just not getting it, not understanding, he takes their greatest failure and turns it into great faith. Pay attention to the questions that people ask Jesus. Don't you care? Don't you care? That's one question that will be uh, asked again and again of Jesus. Pay attention to the questions. Are you willing? Will you do this? And don't just pay attention to the questions. Observe Jesus' answers, not just in how he verbally answers these questions, but observe how Jesus physically, indeed, how he answers these questions. The questions that people come to Jesus with are phenomenal. The fourth theme that I want you to catch is, this is a book that's about mission. We talk about Genesis being a missional community. This is a book that is all about mission. Jesus sending these guys out into the community, into the culture, to be his hands, to be his feet, to be his voice. He empowers them to do the very things that he is doing. He is sending these disciples and other disciples out into culture and into community. Number five, this will not be a boring book, I guarantee you. This has got more demonic activity in this gospel I mean, Jesus is like going crazy with the demonic world, casting out demons all over the place. Miracles, more miracles recorded in this. I mean, Mark seemed to be obsessed with demons and miracles. Every chapter has something to say about a demon getting cast out or Jesus performing some nature over, uh, uh, over miracle over nature, miracle over just someone who has been sick, someone who's been dead and raised to life. You will not be bored. Many miracles and a lot of demonic activity uh, taking place. Transforms illness to health, takes sin and forgives it, takes death and brings life. I think this uh, one, I hope, will resonate with you. I really want you to read this as a story. That's how it was written. I'm going to do the best job I can not to dissect this as some science experiment. This was written as a story. So place yourself as a fly on the wall in the story and ask what must it have been like 
to be there, to be present. Pay attention to what Jesus says, what he doesn't say. Pay attention to what he does, but also what he doesn't do. If you've ever seen like a really, really good movie, one of the things that makes it such a good movie is you get drawn into the characters, you get drawn into the story. Allow this story to draw you in. The main character, the protagonist, the hero is Jesus. Get yourself drawn into this story uh, as Mark um, uh, unveils the story. It's an incredible story. It starts in verse 1. It says this, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel means good news. And the good news is that God broke forth into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. Meaning the person of Jesus Christ, his, less, his, his life, his death, his resurrection will be the very thing that gives humanity hope. Okay, just in this one verse, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What a great beginning. If you were going to write a story, this is a great way to start the story. There is no long list or genealogy. There is no birth narrative of, uh, of Jesus as recorded in Matthew or maybe in Luke. He just jumps right in and says, this is going to be a story about Jesus. And what I really love, if you're a person who can get drawn into a story through the characters, aren't you, is your interest at all piqued so far? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Meaning, for me personally, if this is a story about Jesus, and Christ, by the way, is not his last name. I just wanted to clarify that. Anointed or Messiah, Jesus the anointed, the Messiah, who is the Son of God. I'm already in. If Jesus is God's Son, I want to know right away, what's God's Son like? I'm curious to know, if this is really the Son of God, if this person, Jesus, what's he doing here? Why is God's Son showing up in humanity? Start asking these types of questions. If he's God's Son, well, what's God's Son like? What kind of things is he going to talk about? How is he going to treat people? Is he going to be some pompous prince? Or is he going to be an amazing, compassionate person? If this is God's, I mean, if this is Jesus, is really God's son, one question I'm certainly going to ask is, why is God's son showing up on planet Earth? Is he upset? Did he come because he's got something to tell humanity? We haven't been doing a good job. I mean, why is God's son showing up? And how long is he going to stay? I mean, just from verse 1 alone, I'm already drawn into the person of Jesus because Mark says this is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And he's not just some, any type of Messiah, some royal figure. This is the son of God. I want to know who this person is. If he's really God's son, I'm already drawn in. The story goes on. Verse 2 and 3. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, it says this, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Uh, Mark is quoting uh, two Old Testament scripture verses. One is Malachi, it says this, 
See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then also in Isaiah, he's combining these two verses. A voice of one calling, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. What a great picture. A highway for our God. God is about to break forth into human history. And he's going to send someone to prepare the way for his arrival. This might not mean much to you. But if you're a, a, a Jewish person in the first century, this is a really big deal. Because Mark is taking his story and he's grounding his story in a story that was already begun, uh, was being told. Isaiah was a prophet 800 years before the person of Jesus. And he is talking about uh, someone that God is going to send to prepare the way for God to break forth into human history. About 400 years before the arrival is another prophet named Malachi. And he is telling the story of what God is going to do. So it wasn't like Jesus just showed up, or John the Baptist showed up one day. I'll introduce you to him in a second. And he's talking about this, this person that's going to come and be, they were expecting it. They were waiting for it. It wasn't like Jesus just showed up and be like, whoa, 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 where are you coming from? In first century, there was a messianic expectation. The people were hoping and waiting that a Messiah would come. But before the Messiah would come, as the prophets talked about, there would be one who would come and a highway for our God to prepare the way. Jesus, or John the Baptist, is the one that is sent. And Isaiah says that it's written, Isaiah the prophet, I will send a messenger ahead of you. I want you to catch this. My understanding of God has really been transformed over the last uh, uh, few years. I've really started to understand God and understand Scripture, that God is a missional God. He is a God who is sending people. I see this right here in Mark chapter 1, verse 2. God is sending someone. He's a God who sends. I just want you to catch that. John was sent to prepare the way. Jesus was sent uh, to save humanity, and Jesus sends us, sends us, his followers, into the world to proclaim the way which is Jesus. His mission was very clear. John's mission was to prepare the way for God to break forth into human history. Let me ask you a question. How would John prepare the way? Is it literally like a road that Jesus is going to walk down this road? To prepare the way is another way of saying he was sent to prepare people. He was sent to prepare the people for the arrival of God's Son being Jesus Christ. Prepare the people. I wonder, as you sit here tonight, are you prepared to meet God? Are you in a place in your life where you are prepared to meet the person of Jesus? To meet God? On Tuesday, there's going to be a pretty big vote. Hopefully, on Wednesday, there will be a winner declared. Hypothetical situation. Whoever the winner is calls you on the phone and says, hey, I'd like to take you out to lunch and celebrate my most recent victory. Would you do anything to prepare yourself to meet with our future president? Would you prepare yourself in any way? What would you, I mean, would you just drop everything to, to go and be with whoever this next president is going to be? 
I would venture to say most of us would do anything and everything we possibly could to prepare ourselves to be in the presence of our next president. Are you right now where you sit prepared to meet Jesus? Are you prepared to meet the person of Jesus who is God? Now, obviously the question I'm about to ask you is, what does it actually mean to be prepared to meet Jesus? I just want to paint this picture of John, because John the Baptist. I'm thinking, okay, if God is sending somebody to prepare the way for his arrival into human history, just a question, what do you think this guy would be like? If this was going to be like God's ambassador, he was going to be representing God's entrance into humanity in the person of Jesus, what do you think this guy would be like? I'm guessing he'd probably have... I don't know, some type of training for this type of thing. Maybe some formal education. Maybe he'd be well-to-do. A very impressive individual. I cannot fathom, and it wouldn't even be on my radar, that he would pick some desert-dwelling Obi-Wan Kenobi-looking, like, crazy guy in the desert who had really a one-word vocabulary. He just couldn't stop screaming from the top of his lungs, repent. I'm sure he said a few other things in the midst of his big bushy beard with honey gall screaming, just repent. This is, this is who God says, that guy. That's going to be the guy who's going to prepare the way for my arrival. One of the things that I am encouraged by that John is the one that is sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus It's such a reminder to me that God chooses the least likely to do his greatest acts in humanity. This is a a, a side tangent for you. But I look at the person of John, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This is God's choice? This is God's choice to prepare the way? Let me read you uh, a little bit about John. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region. I'm in uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So far, so good. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. They were confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is where it gets a little weird. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. Okay, when I was in Israel, I got to spend some time. I rode on a camel and... uh, I had shorts on, and it was the most itchy experience I've ever had. Because it's not like comfortable clothing, okay? So um, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt to help add to the style around his waist. And he ate locust. Now, I just want to show you a picture of what the first person uh, of fear factor, this is what a locust looks like much like a grasshopper. This was his diet. Okay? Desert dwelling is his mailing address. And um, I'm sure it may have been stylish back in the day, camel's hair. Um, uh, He did have an accessory of a nice leather belt. And I'm assuming since that guy was probably a little bit tough to get down, uh, Mark says he ate locusts and wild honey. The wild honey would help that little bug just slide ever so... Nicely down. 
this is the person that is sent by God to prepare the way. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If John the Baptist is really the one who's to prepare the way for God, I'm not sure I want to go that way. If my only knowledge I have so far is I'm looking at this desert-dwelling Obi-Wan Kenobi-looking guy, I'm not sure if that's really the way I want to walk. But the reality is, people were flocking to hear his message. They were coming from the Judean countryside. They were coming from the city, from Jerusalem. People were flocking to hear his message. I first met John the Baptist in uh, 1991. I was uh, walking, I went to Ohio State, The Ohio State University, and um, I was walking across campus my freshman year as a swimmer, and uh, Ohio State's like 60,000 undergrad, pretty big school, and uh, swimmers, uh, I don't know if it's to try to be cool, I think that's why we did this, we wore these like parkas, you ever see a swimmer wear a parka? It's totally the most, not fashionable at all, but you'd wear one. And Ohio State, scarlet and gray, so this parka was like big, bright red coat, and uh, scarlet uh, or gray right down the back saying OSU swimming. There's only 18 guys on the team, so of 60,000 guys in red coats kind of stand out. And I'm walking across campus, and um, I hear someone screaming at the top of his lungs, you in the red coat, repent, you fornicator. And I was like, I was like well, I'm the only one wearing a red coat. This is a new F word to me that I haven't heard on this campus before. And... I stopped and I kind of looked and he's like, you, you are a fornicator. Repent of your lustful thoughts. And I was like, wow. And so uh, he kept yelling at me to come over and talk with him. And it was one of those moments, everyone in the Oval, there's, you know, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred people at this point, uh, and they're all looking at me. What's the fornicating, lustful, thoughtful person going to do? And so uh, me, I was like, well, I'm He's calling me out, so I guess I'll go talk to him. And uh, his name was Brother Jed, uh, a.k.a. John the Baptist. And this was his, his thing. He would stand in the middle of the oval, the center of the campus, and literally scream at people at the top of their lungs. And he would yell the craziest things, call people out on stuff that he had no clue about, all in a way just to draw attention to himself. The difference between this brother Jed and John the Baptist is this guy's whole mission was just to finger point and to, to condemn people. But as I look at John the Baptist, his person, his heart, was to prepare people for the person of God. And so his message may have, may have been of repentance for sin, but it was one of forgiveness. He did not point fingers he was leading people to a place where they would experience the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, forgiveness of sin. Now, there was many people uh, at Ohio State who would totally dismiss this guy as nothing more than just a whack job, like me. There was a lot of people in first century 
who dismissed the person of John the Baptist because of how he looked, how he dressed, where he lived, what he ate, and ultimately what he was telling people. But you know who rejected him, who dismissed him the most? Was the religious people of the day. And I understand why, because he would yell at them the most. He'd be like, you're hypocrites, you're a brood of vipers, you're evil people. So I'm thinking, I wasn't really happy with Brother Jed calling me a fornicator who just lusted after anything and everything. So I dismissed him. And John the Baptist was not afraid to call people out, but he was leading them, preparing them for forgiveness. Leading them, preparing them to a place where they would be ready, prepared to meet the person of Jesus. So this is not a popular message to preach, but it was a powerful message that John the Baptist uh, was preaching. And people listened and they responded. And when they would respond, they would do two things. They would confess and then they would get drenched. As a symbol, a sign, symbolically speaking, of I'm confessing my sin and I am going to repent of sin. Symbolically, what they would do is they would enter into the Jordan River and they would uh, immerse themselves in water. Dead man going underwater, a new man coming up. A turning from one way of living to turning to uh, the person of God, to, to Jesus. Bless you. Let me ask you a question. When do you confess? Like, when do you confess stuff? If you're from a Catholic background, which some of you may be, the, just the word confession just like hair stands up and you get freaked out because it was you had to go to like a black box and there would be a guy uh, not very fashionable wearing a black collar with a white shirt. And you'd tell your deep, deepest, darkest secrets, sins to him. That's when you would go to confession. And so you, the whole idea of confession is just, it's even hard for you to think about. When do you confess your sin? For me, it's, uh, as I was thinking about this, I don't confess my sin that much. It's not because I don't have sin to confess, but for some reason, I've noticed that I only confess the big things, like the really bad mess-ups, the really big sins. When do you confess your sin? At what point do you cross the line and be like, oh, I should confess that one? But that judging thought that you had of someone, even maybe when you came in tonight, do you, do you, con do you confess that? How about when you're just filled with worry? Do you confess that? When you rip that person apart, do you confess that? Just asking a question, because being prepared for the person of Jesus, John said, confession of sin and then repentance. The role of confession in our life needs to be every day, it needs to be very present. And so hopefully this will be uh, helpful, uh, but I wanted to give you just very quickly a general rule on confession. Do it as often as you sin. So you might confess like 20 times in one day. It might be more, it might be less. But as soon as you understand that what you've done, what you've said, what you've thought, how you've responded, how you've reacted, how you've treated, as soon as sin has entered into the picture, confess that right then and there. So do it as often as you sin. And con confess the sin. If you were to go into a shoe store 
And uh, you walk in, and the guy says, uh, how can I help you? And you walk in, and you're like, uh, I'd like some shoes. I'm here for shoes. Well, you've come to the right place. Well, what kind of shoes? Oh, just shoes. Do you want running shoes? Do you want hiking shoes? Do you want cross trainers? Do you want basketball shoes? Do you want, like, casual dress shoes? What kind of shoes do you want? I just want shoes. Well, we have a variety of shoes. No, no, I... I'm just here for shoes. Like a lot of us approach God like that. Why are you here? I'm just here to confess sin. Okay, well, what sin? I don't know. I just, I'm sure I did something. So I'm confessing. If you know what the sin is, and by the way, we will, confess that sin, not just sin in general. It's not like in the morning or at the end of the day, confess my sins. No, throughout the day, as you sin, confess that sin, preparing yourself for the person of Jesus. A second thing is this. When you confess, trust that it's forgiven. 1 John 1.9 is a great verse. Remember this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when you confess, know that you are forgiven completely. And God begins a purifying work in you where the same, that sin is just not so pleasing, not so pleasant. He's the one who is purifying. So trust that God forgives sin. Third thing, and this is maybe a hard one for some of us, confess it to a friend. Not that they are a Redeemer, Messiah, God person in your life, but allow someone else into those places and spaces in your life so that they can pray for you, so that they can encourage you. I have a group of guys in my life that I confess my junk to. It would not be helpful for me to sit up here in my chair, although you might be interested, to confess my stuff. But I confess my stuff, my sin, to people who I know love me and care about me and are going to pray for me. James uh, chapter 5 says it like this, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other, and then pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's something healing. There's something refreshing about confessing our junk to someone else. Allow someone else into that place. And then the fourth thing and final thing, repent. This is John's message. People were confessing their sin, part of the preparation, preparing them to see, meet Jesus, was confession of sin and then repentance, meaning turn from it. Repentance is a very easy picture. You can only be walking one of two directions in your life. I cannot be walking this way and that way at the same time. It is physically not possible. I don't care if you have like superhuman, like flexible, you can't be going in two different directions at the same time. You can't live life like that. To repent means just to turn. You either are living a life where you're walking away from God or you're living a life where you're walking towards God. And you've heard me say this before, there's no middle ground, there's no neutrality. You cannot live life in neutral. Life is about motion and movement. We are always moving. Every decision, every choice we make, we're either walking that way, away from God, or we're walking towards God. His message was turn from sin. Stop walking towards sin, in sin, with sin, 
loving sin and turn towards God. If you would be a person prepared to meet Jesus, confess your stuff, confess your sin. That's what people were doing. And then they were, through baptism, symbolically saying, I am literally turning and walking towards God. This is maybe a hard one for some. I would venture to say a lot. What do you need to confess and what do you need to repent of? What do you need to literally just stop and turn from that and turn towards? This is not like turning from something that is very concrete, meaning sin, the things we do, the things we think, and turning towards an abstract. This is a turning towards a relationship, not turning towards a theory, not turning towards just an idea, turning towards a person. What is it that you need to confess, and what is it that you need to repent of? I promise you I would be as bold as I possibly can. You need to repent of sin. If you don't, you are not a person who is prepared to meet with Jesus. This was John. His message was simple but powerful. Confess your sin and repent of it. Turn from it. What is it you need to turn from? Maybe it's something sexual. Maybe you're shacking up where places you should not be shacking up. Maybe you're looking at crap online that you should not be looking at. Maybe you're in a relationship you should not be in. Maybe it's a drinking drug related thing. I'm going for like the big sins, right? Maybe it's worry and fear. Maybe it's bitterness, hatred, anger. What is it you need to repent of? You can only live life walking in one direction. The invitation is to turn and walk with God towards God. This was John the Baptist's message. I was thinking about John the Baptist uh, a lot, uh, specifically, especially this week. And uh, one of the things that I loved about John is he, he, he practiced what he preached. He totally practiced what he preached. He lived a turned lifestyle. Let that, sit, not, let that phrase, are you a person who's living a turned lifestyle? Not an alternative lifestyle, not an independent lifestyle. Are you a person who's living a turned lifestyle? John the B- Baptist is one who lived a, a turned lifestyle. If you look at verse 7 in Mark chapter 1, it says this, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. What is a turned lifestyle? It's one that confesses, it's one that repents, and it is one that ultimately is pointing your life, points people to Jesus. You have to understand, John was it. He was the show. He was like center stage. People were coming to see him. People were even asking him, are you the one? They were so enamored. The crowd so wanted John to be the one. And every time someone was impressed, enamored, in awe of John, he kept deflecting. He kept saying, no, not me. The one who is coming, I'm not even worthy 
to untie this guy's sandals. A turned lifestyle is a lifestyle that continues to point people to Jesus. What do you do when people become really impressed with you? What do you do? Do you enjoy that when people are so enamored or impressed with you that you actually start believing the press and become impressed with yourself? Where you start believing what people might be saying about you? And you might be like, well, no one's impressed with me. I wonder, does that drive you to work even harder to get people to be impressed with you? The point being, a turned lifestyle is not a life where we're trying to get people to be impressed with me, with you, with any of us. It is a lifestyle that is relentless in saying it is so about Jesus. It is so about Jesus. I can't even, this guy's sandals, I can't even untie him. And John is lowering himself in that culture to the lowest form of slave-servant in the day. I can't even take the guy's shoes off. He kept pointing people to the person of Jesus. Are you living a turned lifestyle? I really like that phrase. Because it resonates with me. I look at John, he lived a turned lifestyle. He lived a turned lifestyle. John finishes up in uh, chapter 8, and this is where we'll stop tonight. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Spirit of God. John was saying, you can confess, you, you need to repent, but I, at best, I can put some water on top of you. That's it. I can put some Jordan water on top of your head and then send you on your way. But this person, Jesus, that is coming, he's not just going to put something on you. He's going to put something in you, the Spirit of God. So that when I confess and I turn, repent, walking towards God, I don't do it alone. I am filled with the Spirit of God that lives and resides in me. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians. I love this verse. Now it is God who makes both, uh, both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. When I meet the person of Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm repenting from walking away from God, and I turn towards God. And by the way, you can't, like, turn half of you. Like, you can't turn the easy half. And be like, well, I'll, I'll give you this stuff. But this stuff, this, like, relational stuff, the things that I still am, I love, I'm not ready to give that. That's not a turned lifestyle. You're not repenting. It's, you turn. You can't do both. You can't live in the middle, and you can't walk that way and that. You're either walking one of two ways, towards God or away from God. But when we walk with God through the person of Jesus, towards God, we don't walk alone. John put water on people's heads. Jesus puts his spirit in us. Tonight, I just wanted you to sit as we would finish and before we would celebrate communion together. And I'm asking you a pretty hard question. If you're going to live a turned lifestyle, if you're a prepared person, this is the whole part of the first story. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
God sends someone to prepare people to meet Jesus. That preparation was confession and turning from living a life that's making it about you to being ready to meet God. That's where we're going to stop this story. And I really feel before we can continue on in the story in the weeks to come, are you a prepared person? Confess your stuff now. Name it. And then say, make the commitment to say, God, I'm turning from that. One of the phrases in the church that drives me nuts is when pastors are like, you need to rededicate your life. No, you don't. You need to repent. There's no such thing as rededication. I can't tell you how many times growing up in the church, I was like, seriously, God, this time I'm, I'm rededicating myself to you. Only to come back like four days later and be like, okay, seriously, God, this time I'm totally in. I'm totally dedicated to you. And like two weeks would go by, and I'm like, okay, God, I know you're laughing at this one, but seriously, this time, I'm in. Don't rededicate your life. That's, that's silly. Repent. Just repent. Confess what needs to be con- confessed, sin, and then repent and turn and say, no more. I'm going to walk this way. All of me, not part, not some, all of me is walking towards God. Tonight is we would celebrate communion. I wish I could just get a hose out here and spray all of us down for those who are in and want to say I'm confessing my sin. I wish I would have thought of that before right this second. Because we got a hose back there, it would have worked. So rather than the hose technique, as you would come tonight, as a way of saying to God, I'm confessing my sin and I am repenting of it. When you would come and take communion, remember communion is we are remembering what Jesus has done for us. His life was perfect without sin and because of that I have hope. I can have peace with God. My sins are forgiven because of Jesus. If you are a person who wants to turn and live not for you but live for God, as you would come up and celebrate communion tonight. Confess your sin and trust that it's forgiven completely. God is like all in or not. He doesn't like just forgive some. I want you to know that about God. All of it's forgiven. So if you confess, believe and trust in your heart, the scripture makes clear, you're forgiven. And then make the commitment to repent and say no more. By the Spirit of God that lives within me, I repent. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.